0: I'm Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the VBC on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Welcome to the VBC's ninth episode of Lioness, the origin story. This is a special podcast dedicated to telling the history of lioness vets from their point of view. Over the course of this series, we'll cover everything from team lioness to female engagement teams and the cultural support teams. Our goal is to shed light on this unexplored history. Joining me again is filmmaker and writer Daria Summers. In 2008, Daria Summers, along with her filmmaking colleague, Meg McClagan, released Lioness, a documentary that revealed the history of a group of women support soldiers who went to Iraq in 2003 as mechanics, clerks, and engineers, but ended up serving as the original Lioness soldiers. Although Lioness's mission was to defuse tensions with Iraqi women and children, they fought in some of the bloodiest battles of the Iraq War. I'm going to hand it off here to Daria, who's going to introduce today's special guest, a Marine Corps FET veteran. Uh, Very excited for the conversation today. Take it away, Daria.
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for Episode 9. I'm both extremely honored and very excited to introduce our guest today. Her accomplishments as a Marine and her work as a veteran are simply extraordinary. Retired Sergeant Major Raquel Painter joined the Marine Corps at 17. And when she retired after nearly 27 years of service, she was one of only 23 Marines to ever earn the rank of Sergeant Major. During her career, she supported humanitarian efforts that following the 1995 Oklahoma bombing and also in Sri Lanka after the 2004 tsunami. In March of 2007, she deployed to Iraq with Combat Logistics Battalion 8. And in July of 2009, she deployed to Afghanistan with Combat Logistics Battalion 6, where she was responsible for Marines and sailors at five different forward operating bases. During that deployment, she also served as the brigade headquarters group FET leader, overseeing a group of 20 female engagement team members and completed 11 patrol missions. In 2010, she was promoted to Sergeant Major and received her last assignment as Sergeant Major of the Wounded Warrior Battalion East. Upon her retirement from the Marine Corps in 2016, her interest in community and nonprofit work led to her role as the Hope for the Warriors Community Development Manager. Eight years later, she serves as president of the United Way of Onslow County, North Carolina. In 2021, Raquel, who was part Sioux and Winnebago, inaugurated an annual powwow to honor indigenous Americans who have served. The impact of this work is even more amazing when you realize that since World War II, a greater percentage of Native Americans have served in the armed forces than any other ethnic group. And that in North Carolina, you have the highest populations of Native Americans east of the Mississippi. I could go on. But then we wouldn't have time for the interview. So I'll just add that in 2021 Raquel was named North Carolina's 2021 combat female veteran of the year. Welcome Raquel. I'm so glad to be here.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, I thought we could start, i like to do sort of an overall through line kind of of each veteran, uh, their service and their experience. So can we start with you just deciding um, as a young girl and I think you were, you said you grew
2: up in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Iowa, um, Sioux City, Iowa, which is right on the border of Nebraska and South Dakota and Iowa, where we all merged there. And it was in second grade when I made the decision I wanted to be a Marine. Everybody was like second grade, oh my gosh, that's young. Well, we had career day and my classmate's father was a Marine. And when he walked in, he had his dress blues on. The whole class was quiet and no one said anything through his whole walk in the room, his talk and his walk out. And this was second graders. And I was like, oh my gosh, I go, I want that. I want this when I walk in a room and people are like focused on you and really listening to what you're saying So from that point on, I watched some Marine movies, um, read books. And, you know, when you're in second grade, it's really cute. But then when I got to high school and it was time for me to enlist, my father was like, no way. (laughs) No way. I was 17 and I needed both my parents' permission. And the recruiter came to the house on the third time and said he wasn't coming back. Um, This was it. So my mom... I remember this distinctly called my dad in the kitchen they had some words and he came out and signed it (laughs) and the rest is history then I spent um 26 and a half years in the Marine Corps Um, loved every minute of it raised my family in the Marine Corps so uh, a lot of great memories so you you said you were one of
1: seven girls
2: one of yes yes so I got six sisters six sisters and I'm the second to the youngest. Um actually I was supposed to be the youngest and 5 years later they my dad tried again and I had my baby sister. <laughs> and are you the only one of
1: your sisters to serve?
2: Yes, the only one. I'm the only one to serve. Mm-hmm. And I think that one was enough for my dad. <laughs> well, god bless him. Yeah, especially the Marines. He was like Does it got to be the Marines? (laughs) Well, no,
1: I can. I mean, I I feel for him. I can. I can. Uh, you know, especially at that time, it you know Mm -hmm. probably was unexpected, and um, and or at least not what he expected.
2: Oh yes, yes, not what he expected. Yeah. So that was um in '89. I mean, when I think of you know, I came in '89 and I retired in 2016. The difference in the changes that were made in the Marine Corps were just unbelievable. You know, when I came in, there was only certain jobs open to us. Obviously, you know, admin, legal, supply, motor T. And then when I retired, all the fields were opening up to, to females.
1: Yeah, by the time you had retired, mm-hmm. I mean, in 2013, they rescinded the combat exclusion policy, which, you know, was mm-hmm. sort of... not. On some level, operating in name only at that point, but yeah, but but it was just the beginning of of well, okay, the system
2: is starting to change.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think a big milestone just occurred this year for the Marine Corps is they closed down Fourth Battalion, Fourth Recruit Training Battalion, which was the only battalion that chain or that trained females, so that officially deactivated.
1: Oh, so now that's. That- I had not heard that, but that would be so important mm-hmm. because now you're mainstreamed. Yes. So there's, no, there's no marginalized section for you.
2: No, no. So yeah. they're training. You know, they've been training um, females with the male recruits. You know, for for a few years, but they officially deactivated Fourth Battalion, so now it's all integrated training. So
1: I got a sense from um, reading about uh, you that part of what appealed to you or what you discovered in the Marines was the idea of service. Mm -hmm. And um, and a couple of other, uh, I mean, most of them, but two uh, two, uh, veterans in particular, really one who was a cultural support team member and the the last female engagement uh, team member I had on, both were motivated in the same way by service. And, but I was struck by so, your two of your first, um, I guess, deployments, as you would call them uh, one was to uh, in the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing for humanitarian service. And, mm-hmm. and then the other one was in the aftermath in Sri Lanka, in the aftermath of the tsunami. And so, just before we get to the other stuff, I just felt those are really unusual, very compelling. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about them.
2: Yes, yeah, so um, with the Alpha Mirror Building bombing, I was actually stationed at the Oklahoma City maps at that time. So the Meps is the military entrance processing station, and at the time we just moved maybe um, a mile away from the federal building at that time, so we were closer to the airport. But when that bomb went off, us being located where we were, it actually felt like a plane hit that building. It actually felt like a plane hit our building. That's how much of that blast that we felt where we were at. Um, so obviously during that, you know, the days after that, you know, the um, the Air Force Base was the closest base, their Tinker Air Force Base. They were soliciting the volunteers to help with the cleanup and the recovery. So obviously the active duty from the military entrance processing station became part of that too. So it was a significant, um, I guess, uh, memory I've had while I was serving just because um, a strange, strange um, coincidence happened was I actually had orders to the recruiting station that was in that building. But I was deployed to Corporate Gold at the time in in Thailand. So I wasn't going to make it back from that deployment to fill that vacancy as soon as they needed it. So they swapped me and Sergeant Davis's orders. So Sergeant Davis went to the recruiting station and I went to the maps. Well, he didn't make it. So I had a lot of that um, survivor's guilt about it um, because he did have two children. He had a wife, um, you know, and it was just those things that, you know, when it comes to orders and timing, how, how much of a difference it affects a person's life or could affect I'm a person's life because I'm thinking, you know, my kids, you know, if I had orders there, my kids would have been in that daycare. Um, you know, and, you know, there's just so many would ifs that came to it. So i really held on to, um, survivor's guilt for a while after that.
1: And we, that, so that was like, you were about
2: five or six years in. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. So well, that was in 95 when that happened. Like mm-hmm. in your mid twenties, early twenties. Yes. Yep. I was about 24 at the time. Um, well, and I just, A formative mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was very traumatic, especially when I'm thinking, you know, wow, that was me. Then I was like, Oh my gosh, that now this family is going through that because my orders were changed. So there was just so much um, that was to that. And I think it was before really there was that survivor's guilt that was labeled that way. But Like I couldn't talk, you know, I couldn't even, you know, I couldn't even talk to his wife afterwards. I mean, I just felt so guilty that he lost his life in that.
1: Right. I mean, I I think you make a good point because at that time there wasn't a, uh, the language didn't exist for people to kind of reach out especially veterans or it just even in traumatic situations for people to have that kind of dialogue it wasn't Mm -hmm. it wasn't easy because there wasn't almost like a language and understanding pathway Mm -hmm. Wow. wow and then not so not long after that you were in sri lanka
2: yeah so at that time um so when the tsunami hit through the maldives area that was 2005 and I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan at that time. So us being at the time I was with Combat Logistics mm-hmm. Force and um, we got, you know, pulled together and sent um, units over there to help in the aftermath of that. So we were spread out through the Maldives, throughout um, Sri Lanka, and Sri Lanka was where the headquarters were for the, um, the task force that was managing that. So I stayed in Sri Lanka um, during that the cleanup wow. phase of that. Mm-hmm. Wow,
1: and that that must have been uh, um, a moving experience as well.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. But just when you think of the destruction that happens with Mother Nature, sometimes I know you know you think of the fires that are going on, you know the earthquakes, you know volcanoes. I mean, just the destruction that can happen and how it affects the people there. So that there, um, I really um, found my calling in the humanitarian work during that um, operation that we went out on.
1: Right. And that's what I actually find very interesting about your service arc is that mm-hmm. you, because it it sort of, it felt early, you just in, in reading about it, you, it felt like you've had consistently, you've had this theme even before, almost as an attraction to join to be part of something larger than yourself and to serve and he because of the time frame that you served I've many uh of the younger um you know veterans who i've worked with or spoken to in the past their first um sort of defining experiences were deployments to iraq mm-hmm. afghanistan whereas before you even got to that you had these two deployments that were you know, one, yes, was a terrorist act, but the other was just a national disaster. But your humanitarian effort, I mean, it was an opportunity to serve. So
2: completely mm-hmm. in that regard. Oh, don't, yeah. And I, and I, I really that think to. those two events really um, help formulate, um, I think, my leadership years in the Marine Corps. So I was a young sergeant during the um, the Mira bombing. And then I was um, a staff sergeant getting ready to pick up Gunny when um, I went to Sri Lanka. And then obviously my two deployments after that was, one was to Iraq and the other one was to Afghanistan. Both of those, I was first sergeant and sergeant major for those deployments. So I had a, a lot more responsibility. <laughs> right. Deploying in the combat zone.
1: So when um just so when you deployed to Iraq um and so that was in um, deploying to Iraq in two thousand and seven can you just mm-hmm. describe uh to me sort of how that you know how that transpired in your life and also going over like at that time what was your MOS so to speak so people mm-hmm. understand what your focus was.
2: Okay, so as a first sergeant, when I went to um, Iraq, really, it's still in my administrative side, but we handle a lot of the personnel, so I was really responsible for for helping our ops chief really track the training, make sure everybody was qualified, making sure everybody was at the rifle range, making sure they got their equipment they needed, so that was all pre-deployment. And then, obviously, while we're out there in deployment, it was just managing the personnel while we were there. Um, I was fortunate to have headquarters company, so I really got to see a lot on the operations side and and work work with our comp- our other companies that were out there because the corpsmen fell under my company. So I would um, be responsible for making sure all the corpsmen go out with our truck say our truck company. So we had a truck company that did, oh my gosh, they did, they, they drove some hours out there. Our truck drivers were just amazing, making sure those supplies were getting out to everybody. Um, we had an engineering company out there. Um, so, and we were also, um, I also had the, the casualty detachment. So, that one there was really a hard one when I went to go visit the Marines that worked that section because they really took the um, the casualties in to their, um, the morgue is what it was. And a lot of them were really the Afghan um, people. So those ones I followed up with the, the gunny who led that detachment, um, you know, even years afterwards, just because, you know, me visiting just a few times there and saw what I saw, you know, had an effect on me. And I can imagine that detachment, there was six Marines there that that worked in that um, that detachment and what they saw and had to deal with on the daily. So I really kept up with them to make sure, you know, everything was, was good, if they needed any support, because they were all reservists. Um, So they a lot of times they wouldn't have the resources that we do as active duty that just went back to a base. So I really um, followed those ones closely just because, to me, that was a a traumatic job to have while we were in Afghan or Iraq.
1: Where were you in Iraq? Uh, Fallujah. Oh, you were in Fallujah. Okay. Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Yeah, so I was on Camp Fallujah.
1: Were you... I'm I'm just curious, but were most of uh, the Marines that you were overseeing and responsible for and following up on uh, mostly male Marines? Were there some female Marines in there? Were there ever any women who had served as Lioness Marines in there?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so being headquarters company, I had quite a few um, females that were in that. So we went out. Uh, I want to say at least two, three times a week to the checkpoints. So we did the the searches as people um, crossed through the checkpoints.
1: And did okay. So um, if you if you were doing the searches, um, mm-hmm. I mean, you were essentially functioning in the capacity of what people now call the lioness duties. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And did you were the, was there any special training? For oh you? yes
2: yeah so we had specialized training to be um going out there at the security check checkpoints so we had the we were trained on how to search um what to look for obviously um the culture classes learned a few language um phrases so they really prepared us to go out there to those um checkpoints and was we'll sent out when we went there we went out in teams of four went out in teams of four. Mm-hmm. Okay, because
1: so you were actually uh, not only a female engagement team member prior in Iraq, you served as a Marine Lioness.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: It, it just that. wasn't
2: called the Lioness program at the time. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's because, I mean, especially
1: with the Lioness program, since it was the first one, it was just a very kind of ad hoc, I believe, you know, it, it was something more over in theater than was really known about back home, I think. As yeah. Well. Back then, oh mm-hmm. um, that's so interesting. And were um were most did most of those um encounters uh, were they more or less perfunctory, or were did you sometimes I've had um, uh, uh, marine lionesses actually and, and and one marine lioness who served in Afghanistan in two thousand and four who just was called a searcher, (laughs) Um, you know, they could get some intel and or also get some information because, you know, they, she had said, women, the mothers, they didn't want weapons (laughs) on them or in their houses because they wanted to keep their children safe. Did you have any encounters
2: like that? It was um, not when we did the security checkpoint. So the experience I had in Iraq was totally different from um, Afghanistan because Afghanistan, we were patrolling, we were with the infantry units, we were going into compounds and we had specific tasks, whether it was to um, gather intel, really to build trust with the, the community, especially that second half, or I always say the half of the population that our males couldn't reach. Um, so there was a big difference between being the female engagement team vice being the, um, on the lioness or the search. Because really at the search one, we really didn't get that time to communicate with the, um, the Afghan population, because all we were doing was searching them to make sure they could go through a checkpoint. But for the female engagement teams, we were engaged. We were assigned to infantry units. So, um, so if I send a team up to an infantry unit, there'd be four members that they're there. They're sleeping. They're eating. They're patrolling. They're part of that infantry unit, and they so, did what they did.
1: So the um, so you went to Iraq. You 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 did this. You had you got. Uh, I'm sure you acquired some understanding of of the. Uh, rock culture and um
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and and so you you took that and i know that based on your own background you have a specific um you know you bring a lot of understanding to the idea of different cultures working side yes
2: so mm-hmm. um which is especially when you think about the cultural sensitivity I mean, I think that's, I always want to mention that because a lot of people aren't as sensitive to other people's culture just because they don't understand. So I think I brought that aspect to the Afghan culture just because I'm aware being Native American and how different our culture is that I was able to really um, focus in and identify those sensitive areas so we can engage easily with the population.
1: So then, so you had... I understand what what you were doing now in your uh, deployment to Iraq, and then in so in July of two thousand and nine, you deployed to Afghanistan with Combat Logistics Battalion Six. Sounds like you had, um, you know, that that was a very intense deployment because not only were you responsible for all the Marines and Sailors at five different operating bases in your administrative capacity. Mm -hmm. but you were also uh, the leader of uh, 20 female engagement team members. And so um, it was like having two jobs. Were they, Mm -hmm. can you you just kind of talk me through at what point did you hear about the female engagement team idea and then find out that you were gonna be in it? And did you have to train before you Mm -hmm. went over?
2: Yeah, so we were identified before we went into country that we were gonna be um, the female engagement team. So when um, we bought our battalion, which is um, we got quite a bit of females that were in our battalion. Um, when we went out to 29 Palms to train, our focus was that. So we were training them to, to make sure they had the skills to be um, and lead a female engagement team. So we had 23 female engagement team members that were attached to the battalion, and two of them were corpsmen. So we did have two um, medical personnel that were gonna go out with the engagement teams. So we we trained um in 29 Palms for that specific mission, in addition to their regular duties, because they're still gonna do their regular duties, whether they're engineer, whether they were a uh, truck driver whether there were, um, like I said, a corpsman. So they still had to perform their functions. So they still trained with their um, their work sections. However, we broke time away. So they're able to train on those tasks required for a female engagement team member. Um, when we got into country, we also um, had specialized training for the female engagement team. And that was pretty much a hand down from those who were doing it from the um, the brigade, brigade side of the house. Um, so we spent, um, I wanna say it was like two weeks, if I recall, time runs together sometimes um, that we trained specifically in Afghanistan to be able to do what we had to do. And then from there, we got our taskings from the um, the brigade on, um how many engagement team members they need attached to what units so the ones that could detach from the units for a longer period of time they went out to the infantry units. Um, so they were patrolling with them they were eating with them they were part of the infantry units when they went out and then we had um, just day ones so if there was a day mission going on then I could pull those ones that could to do it for that day. So it was really a scheduling thing, but it's something that I worked with um the Brigade Operations Center and then filled the female engagement teams through that source.
1: Wow. That um where exactly were you in Afghanistan? What was your um, thought?
2: Yep. Yeah, so I was on Camp Leatherneck in Afghanistan and then we had um five fobs. So being the um headquarters company there so we had we had the cooks we had the the corpsman we had um you know the supply so a lot of times if we had to go out and set up a new fob or base then i'll send my my people out to do that i had cooks i sent out to all the the forward fobs so there's actually five forward observation um bases that I had that I had um marines at or or navy or sailors at. This was Um, was in Hellman Province. Yes, Hellman Province. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um and then also within Hellman Province um our missions went out. So I usually went out on the day missions. So I'd go out on the day missions because obviously I couldn't go away to an infantry battalion. It'd be kind of weird having double sergeant major duties or for sergeant (laughs) duties. But, um, but so I'd go do the day mission. So I did 11, um, missions while we were there. And one of them really, really sticks out to me. We were doing a medical cap. So we were actually setting up a medical tent where we're going to provide medical services for, for the, the neighboring compounds. So when we got there, there was nothing but males that were in line. There were no women and no children. And our focus was women and children. And it was to the point where a lot of the men walked for like the whole day before, spent the night there, just so they could seek medical help. So what we ended up doing was, we gathered up a security team. Um, Four of us went out along with um, our interpreter and we patrolled compound to compound while we were there, um, just so we could find the women and children to see. I know I I sent a picture of you I don't I mean of me I don't know if you saw it but it was me passing candy to a little Afghan girl. Yes that picture. That picture she was one of 25 kids and there was five wives that lived in that little two um room stone house and outside they had of course multiple chickens and goats and stuff. But it just fascinated me that there was twenty-five children.
1: <laughs> and when you- five wives?
2: Five wives.
1: Okay, in one and then
2: Yes, and twenty five kids. So when you when I when you go in there and you meet them, obviously that's totally different from our culture. You know, you can have five wives. Um obviously you could probably have twenty five kids, but who wants twenty-five kids at one time? <laughs> right. But um but there were they were like sisters. So when I was sitting down talking with them, that's what I felt like. I was like, oh my gosh, it feels like I'm just here talking with my sisters. Um, yeah. Uh, so how they were um, very engaging. I mean, I had a great interpreter and all they asked, I get the same questions every time I went out to engage with a, a compound or a population. They want to know one, am I married and how many kids I got? Yeah. That's always the first two questions they ask, right mm-hmm. and And I think that's good because they make that connection. well, I think that's that's actually
1: it's so interesting because that that those are questions that start to humanize everybody for the other
2: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. and then so we bonded over that. So I really you know when I talk, you know, let them know, hey, you know we can't have that many wives, you know, my husband is just me. And they couldn't, they couldn't believe that. They're like, oh my gosh, they're like too much time. That's like, no. <laughs> so they thought, you know, we spent all the time together. They're like, oh no. So they love it that they get to share the time. Well, they, yes. must, have, they must have been
1: fascinated to see um, women
2: in uniform. Yes. got that hmm yes, and a lot of times, you know, we had to take off our helmets and stuff when we got inside just so they could see our hair and to make sure that, yes, we were um, women. hmm
1: And so did you ever find out why, I mean, when you started out the story, you mentioned that you went out to set up the tent, and your focus was on women and children, but all of, there was a big line of men. Mm-hmm. And so did you... I mean, did you have to treat the men and then go to find the women, or how did you?
2: We the you females. Kind of <laughs> yep. Yeah, so all the females, we got up and, like I said, we got our security and we went and found the uh, the females. Now we still had medical personnel there that um, handled all the men, and there were all the the male. Uh, Corman or the, the doctor that they set up. But we took a female doctor with us and we took um, two Corman with us um, to go out and search for that. But they just don't come out. Right. They're, yeah, if they don't have... The, well, once again, it comes to a culture thing. So right. if they don't have a male family member taking them somewhere, they don't go.
1: I mean, on the mm-hmm. one longer, that's kind of heartbreaking.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's, um, there's one, oh my gosh, this one broke my heart. So there, we were at one compound and there's a girl, beautiful girl. She had been about 12 years old because they said she was starting to cover her face. Cause they said she's becoming of age. So she, she still wanted to play with the children, but she's kind of in that in between stage. Anyway, we put music on and we were going to dance with the children, you know, have some fun. And her brother, which was eight years old, told her she couldn't dance. Um, so I, I was like, you know, I had to ask my interpreter, I go, why can't she dance? And then she told me because when dad's gone, he's the man of the house. So if he says they can't do something, they can't do it. So she sat and and watched. So I went to the boy and I was like, you know, hey, you know, everybody's having fun. You know, the translator was translating. I was like you know I go I'd really like to dance with your sister I go me you and your sister could dance and he let her dance but it was just fascinating to me that he was eight years old right and he'd been given all this power yes Yes. Mm yeah yeah so there was just so many cultural differences that you know I was amazed that. And they said a lot of times it's from five years old. They said you can have a five year old running a household when dad's gone. Yeah. And I can't imagine. I was like, my gosh, my five year old's still learning to color with crayons. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. how, how could they yeah. leave decision making to that? But that's just how their culture is.
1: Well, also, I think you, it,
2: you know, when I hear
1: those kinds of stories, although I've never heard this specific story before, mm-hmm. but you do realize. There's not only like the cultural gap that exists in in the moment that you're there but Mm -hmm. part of the um you know that those cultural norms uh you know haven't changed over a long time in those in some of those cultures they're very old Mm -hmm. so you realize you're it's almost like kind of going back in time a little bit because Mm -hmm. They, mm. it, obviously, they don't have any contemporary resonance for us.
2: No. And it, yeah, and it it was really hard to see, especially when I, you know, when I saw that, I guess it didn't resonate me as hard as when I saw that that girl wanted to dance and her brother said no, so she didn't. And I was like, oh my gosh, ours would be so different. Our, the girl, the oldest in our culture, would have been, no, I'm dancing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, they wouldn't say like a five-year-old or an eight-year-old could say whatever they wouldn't want say that. But, they, but they would be like well I don't care what you're saying I'm doing what I want mm-hmm. I mean, it wouldn't be that kind of it's it is very interesting um but you know especially in a situation that you were in you know it was you were there having to you know be very sensitive and respond
2: so yeah
1: to all those cues mm-hmm. um wanted to get back, managing the uh, women, female engagement team members, those Marines who went Mm -hmm. out for longer missions. um, How was that? And did, were there times when they, you know, returned and, you know, were there some missions that They came back to you and was like, wow, this was really hard
2: because Mm -hmm.
1: of that stood out. What kind of stories did they bring out to you? I was wondering if you could give us a range. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. So one, I remember specifically because I I just can't believe it, it happens. So we had a unit that we attached five female engagement team members to and they separated them. So they segregated them. They put them in their own tent they they brought the food to them um the marines, the marines did mhm that they were attached to <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so i was like what in the world why you know why is this happening the way it is well anyway they said and we can't wear our frog gear so our frog gear is another type of gear that they had us wear outside the wire which on well both women and men is it is form-fitting and it's almost like a t-shirt material that's flame resistant. So on a woman, it looked, I mean, you could see a woman's figure most right. definitely, but nothing revealing. Well, the the commander or the the commanding officer of that unit didn't want the females walking around because of that uniform. And I was like, yes, I was like, this is a uniform one that were issued and there's nothing else they could wear Cause this is what the requirement is, is for them to wear this. Um, so it just I, I guess it bothered me so much I had to go to the the general on this one. Um, me, my my captain um presented it to the brigade on that. That, you know, they kept them secluded and the only time they come out came out of their tent was when they went out on patrol because of um that the frog suit that they're wearing
1: i'm sorry but given what mm-hmm. we were just talking about
2: mm-hmm. you see some connection we much
0: <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. you guys know,
2: spoke too soon <laughs> yeah yeah you know but it it's like little things like that you know and it, it's not the whole unit you know right. it was just that one guy who had the power to to do that on that one base did that um had- and
1: he was kind of going against what the larger, what the the top-down uh, uh, way to do things was. He was saying, but down, he, you know, he just,
2: there was no one there. He didn't like the females him. in that uniform. He didn't want. He didn't um, want them there, did he? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking he didn't want them there. I think he was just using it as a reason to do that. But um, to me, so it became an issue you know, where we had to say, hey, you know, you either treat them equally or you're not getting them. And um, so in turn, that will hinder their mission and getting their intel or or whatever, you know, their mission was at that time.
1: And as you you said, they were there, you were there, especially with the female engagement team members mm -hmm. to be in touch with
2: half the population. Mm -hmm. A very important half because this half Talks. This have felt the connection with us to 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 give us details that they would not have gotten anywhere else. Wow, and how mm-hmm. demoralizing for those young women. Oh, very, very. Because a lot of them were were seniors. So the senior one I sent up there was a staff sergeant that was with them. So I had a staff sergeant. Um, so with one staff sergeant, two sergeants, and a corporal was what went up there to that infantry unit. Mm-hmm. And to have that happen to them.
1: Now, were there any um, missions that, um, given that they were, uh, your FET teams were assigned to, um, attached to infantry uh, divisions, were, did any, did any of them,
2: find themselves engaged in? Um, oh, yeah, action. yeah. Quite a few um, um, received Purple Hearts and um, Combat Action Ribbons. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there was no life lost. I didn't lose any female engagement teams, but um, they came back with Combat Action Ribbons and a couple of them with Purple Hearts.
1: And was there, I mean, and I, I've asked this a lot of like, other women who served as cultural support team members and and even even some of the lioness and and some of the um of the other uh marine female engagement teams and marine lionesses said they were able to gather information Mm -hmm. as in intelligence information one gave the example of a woman who just said you want to know where all the weapons are they're they're over there behind that building, telling them because she doesn't want fighting. She doesn't want mm-hmm. her kids to get killed. She doesn't want her husband to get injured or killed.
2: Mm-hmm. Did that happen? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. One, spe- one particular one I remember is um, the husband was um, going to Pakistan. So he's going to Pakistan a lot to the point where whenever we went to that compound, he was gone. You know, and that's who, you know, we kind of wanted to engage with. Um, So finally we sat down because they're like, you guys got to find out where he's been. Where where is he going? So I sat down with his wife. We were talk wives. I should say wives. And and we were talking and they're like, oh, no, he's in Pakistan. So we're like, well, what's he doing in Pakistan? You know, that's an odd place for him to be right now. Oh yeah, they're like, oh, he's on business, and you know, blah 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 blah, talking away. So we went back and reported it back, and come to find out, he was um smuggling for the Taliban.
1: Oh wow, okay. Mm-hmm. So
2: yeah.
1: So I mean, I mean, I think it's. I'm sort of asking what is already apparent, but I just want to find it out in terms of your experience. um your, the work that you did as a female engagement team leader and the female engagement team soldiers under you, Marines under you made a difference.
2: Oh, most definitely. I think that the female engagement teams is what paved the way for us to have open every MOS for us Marines, most definitely. Most definitely, so um, when I did it, it was 2009 through, through 2000 or 2010, and here, like you said, 2013, they opened up, and a few years later after that, the Marines opened up all MOSs to females. So I think most definitely the female engagement teams had a huge impact on that because they're one, they were able to know we were trainable, we were able to be counted on on missions, we completed tasks as required, and we didn't hinder the infantry unit's mission or the capabilities at all, so most definitely, I think the female engagement team really really impacted um the way forward for the the Marines that are serving now
1: so i mean i i i I really I mean I hear that I think that's a really important point because i I feel like what you're saying is like it it became obvious to everyone mhm what the female team engagement teams were doing like made a difference to the mission. Like it it made them you know to the situation and that these women were contributing. And it was and it was these women who were contributing. And that was significant and that kind of like it, you know was was a learning moment for everyone, especially a lot of the men who were like, whoa, what yeah. are these women with us for?
2: hmm. And I think really, um, that's why I love the, the integrated training for us now is because now they are starting out together. So when they first get down to basic training, they're ready to see a female, they're training with her, they can see that she's able to do it. Vice after all the training's done. And then the first time they see females when they check into the unit, you know, back then, you know, they don't know that they we went through the same struggles that they did. So I think now having that integrated training really helps build that bond between the male and the females that are serving together.
1: So one one last question I want to ask you about um the female engagement teams and your deployment with them in Hellman province. Um because I've talked to others who've said that especially for those who went out on maybe longer outside, you know to further, um, further distances for X number of days at a time, that mm-hmm. <clears throat> a number of times they would have to be called back because <clears throat> someone got concerned about, oh, uh, the combat exclusion policy, or you could only be gone for so long before the women would have to come back. Maybe the infantry that they were with didn't have to come back, but they would have to come back and spend one night on a base. And then they could go out again to kind of like make sure DOD or the people who were concerned about the policy, that the policy wasn't being mm-hmm. violated. Did you have any of that?
2: Oh, no, like- not at all. When they requested the female engagement team is for a specific period. So if they had a specific operation going and they needed them for two weeks, that's what that was. So at the end of that two weeks, they that come back. So they might come back and then they might say, oh no, we need them again. Then you know they do another request and we could send them back out there. But um, hadn't, well, um, what I could say is they requested them for whatever time period they needed them for whatever operation that'd go out there and do that and then they could come back. So they're only there for those certain things. So if there's downtime, I don't wanna say there's downtime out there because I don't want it to come out like that. But if they didn't need them for a specific operation they came back.
1: Now and all these women, including yourself, all Mm -hmm. have their jobs. In other words, they would all they would be sort of put assigned to the female engagement teams, but their their traditional MOS or their such as and the same with you was also in another capacity. They could have been mechanics or
2: Mm -hmm. exactly. Whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, but I do know after we were done with ours. So when um, the MEF came over cuz remember it was still early. So we only had the the brigade out there. It was still early. So when the MEF rolled in, they had dedicated female engagement team members at that point where that's what they did.
1: That's what they went over, right? Yeah. No, mm-hmm. and I have and I've heard that. And there I I guess every, there's so many different um parameters sort of surrounding everyone's experience because it was all changing so fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: so it was an evolution process. So right, when we're out right. there as a brigade, we were much smaller than bring out a whole math. So with the whole math, they identified who they wanted on those female engagement teams because we showed that it it was successful. You know, it was working. Right. Yeah, right. so it became the, a, a permanent position for units going out there. So
1: I, and I have to ask this one question. So did you have some uh, moments of, shall I say, uh, satisfaction when you moved back? Because you were also at the headquarters um, and when you, at brigade headquarters, when you would see for some of the other, uh, uh, say, male Marines there who came to understand, wow, look at what the FET teams are doing. This is
2: important. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think at the moment a lot of people didn't see it until after the fact. Right. Um because everybody was just so in the moment on what's going on and what your responsibilities are. Um I think at the top level we we saw the difference, but I think on the bottom one they were just just doing their daily to to survive and 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 get their mission done.
0: Where I think lot. now
2: when yeah so now when somebody looks back on it they're like oh my gosh I, I i saw them in action you know i saw i i patrolled with them yes they they did do that they can do that so i think it's more um hindsight on right. that one mm-hmm.
1: yeah and i mean everyone lessons learned come <clears throat> sort of after the fact as,
2: yeah
1: so you have to get some perspective i know mm-hmm. I, I understand that so I mean, thank you for 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 walking and and talking me through all of <clears throat> your different experiences. Um, and I, I want to get I, probably more than any other uh, veteran that I've interviewed. I want to take time to talk about um your post uh your your work as a veteran in the community after your mm-hmm. retirement. So I just, as I mentioned, you had um retired in uh. 2016 and mm-hmm, yes and and again i've you you seem to have a certain uh feeling for what you wanted to do and um can you talk us through how you kind of got to your position as um president of the united
2: way for Onslow county oh most definitely so my last duty station i was sergeant major wounded warrior Battalion. When I was at Wounded Warrior Battalion, I really got to see what nonprofits and faith-based organizations did for, for our Wounded Warriors. And I decided then that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go out um, and work in a community, but to help those that that need the help. Um, so I retired early. I, I get harassed all the time with like, oh my gosh, you can do just one more enlistment. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I guess I could have, but I had a calling. I really wanted to go into nonprofit. And that was an opportune time for me because I, I'm already dealing with all the nonprofits at One Warrior Battalion. Um, so I, I put in my retirement papers, um, retired early, had a lot of offers from nonprofits because everybody knew that's what I was going to do. Um, and so I went with Hope for the Warriors. So Hope for the Warriors, I spent two years with them. Really, um, you know, helping wounded service members in that capacity, but I really wanted to focus on um, smaller scale, because um, Hope for the Wars was national, but I wanted to focus on small scale because I got to be able to see the fruits of my labor. <laughs> um, so I went ahead and took the position at United Way here in Onslow County, and I get to help the community on so many levels so i definitely found my calling i am glad with the decision i made um, i'm still right outside the base <laughs> so i do a lot of stuff with the veterans um i just recently um started the onsole veterans power right here in the community because a lot of people don't know as native americans we really sacrifice our culture although veterans sacrifice a whole lot of stuff um veterans um especially native americans you know being a male a lot of them have to cut their hair when they come in which is sacred to them a lot of times we're stationed at duty stations we can't put on our regalia and go dance somewhere because there's nothing there we can't go outside a base and get um fry bread if we want it because no one sells it um, so we really sacrifice a lot so and if you're not able to get home during a ceremony Whether duty commitments, deployments, funding, you name it, then you went without. You know, I made it home, I could tell you four times in my 26 and a half years, I made it home for a ceremony. Um, And to me, I I just don't think that that's right at all. You know, um, a person serving their country and we do so many sacrifices as it is, your culture shouldn't be one of them. So I established the Onslow Veterans Powwow right outside of Camp Lejeune. It provides the um, the Native Americans that are serving an opportunity to participate in their culture um, through various um, ceremonies that I set up throughout that weekend, um, but also honor all the veterans. We got a huge veterans population here, so we really honor them, um, non non Native veterans alike, along with the Native American veterans. Honor them through Native American culture. So um, I just went over my third year having that and. Um, The last this past weekend, it's always the first weekend in November, we had over 7000 spectators and probably close to 300 veterans in the circle that were getting recognized. It was absolutely beautiful. And and that's what I want to do. I want to make sure veterans are recognized. I want to make sure they're taken care of. Um, So those are like my efforts I do now.
1: Wow, that's amazing. So um, because what you're saying is. That the powwow, which you this and this, this is in Onslow County, the powwow, yes, and, and so yes, you, ma'am. you're mm-hmm. and you're chairman of that, yes, make sure this happens every year, mm-hmm. every and, year, and not and obviously its primary focus is to bring in the uh, indigenous Americans who have served, uh, mm-hmm. but also you do you, you welcome non-indigenous. Americans?
2: Oh, yes. Yep. Know, and it's and one thing I make sure is that it's free. So it's open to the public. Anybody could come. Um, and I make sure it's free through sponsorships, because I know um, as a young girl, if something was going on and, you know, if you have whatever, six sisters, and it costs even $5 to get in, that's $30 the family didn't have. So I don't think it... Um, me and the committee agree that um, someone's economic status should not um, prevent them from experiencing Native American culture. So we get um, sponsorships from um, communities that want to support veterans, and then it's a free event for the community. Mm-hmm. That
1: that sounds amazing. And I just wanted to ask you, um, because it seems, because when you say that, uh, you know, that your your culture should be available to you. But I'm also thinking that in the Native American culture so often those cultural events are already deeply connected with a spiritual aspect. Mm -hmm. Maybe more so, not that it doesn't happen in other cultures but that that does seem to be very um, kind of a core principle in Native American culture
2: yes yes very correct so um even at the powwow i'll hold in an anipi which is like the sweat lodge so so our um native members or even you know we get people that um sign up that just want to experience that spirituality of native american culture so they would be able to experience that at the powwow so i do bring in um different um venues into the powwow so we have our traditional powwow where it'll show like different dances, from different cultures. We got all the tribes representative, uh, representative, you know, I bring a teepee in, let them experience going in a teepee. Um, So really give them that full um, Native American experience. Um, It's just because I just think it's so important. Wow. Mm -hmm.
1: That's just, that's so amazing. Um, And is, I mean, you've done, You've done so much in service uh to the country, and then you've done so much in service now, and I think you're continuing to do to to your community and and to uh for indigenous Americans. And what what do you see for yourself? What more do you want to do?
2: Um right now I, I think I want to take a break. <laughs> No, I'm a I'm a new grandma. So my my grandbaby's one year old. So I think I'm gonna try to spend a little bit more time with her. So I'm probably gonna step away from a few of my hats that I'm wearing. And um, but if there's something that comes up that's a new initiative and they need someone to help lead or assist, then by all means I'm gonna sign up for it if it's something that that really speaks 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 to me.
1: Wow. Well, I um I I just I mean I'm just so in awe of of your life and your accomplishments and everything that you have done and continuing to do and um also just sort of what has shined through in speaking with you is is the idea of service. And I think
2: mm-hmm. that
1: that's often a component and I, I don't wanna be glib and say that's every experience in the military, but it is an experience that does occur and it's just there embedded so organic to your life. And I think you brought that sense of service to your work um, and it runs as a theme. And I think it's just exceptional. So I just wanna say what an honor it was to speak with you and thank you for your service. And um, I I can't even imagine how it must mean so much to the people in your area that you have s- created the powwow and that it's open to um, Native Americans and others who would just want to open up and experience what you have. Because I, you know, that the sensitivity between cultures just doesn't happen. If when you're in this country, sensitivities to other cultures just doesn't happen when you go outside of our borders it happens every day when you're within them and the more we're aware of that i think the better and you're a wonderful example of that
2: thank you so much i i love being on your show and getting the word out to everybody and um, really educating people on the female engagement teams just because i think they're they're going to go down in history as being a game changer for for the females
1: absolutely